Hey, Tom, good to see you. How are you doing? I'm good, Stephen. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you very much. So I, I'm, I'm well familiar with your work and what keeps you busy, but maybe you can let our uh, audience know what keeps you busy. Yes, yeah, so I'm the editor of Spiked, which is a British current affairs magazine known for um, arguing for freedom of speech, democracy, and trying to stand up to all kinds of different forms of hysteria, <laughs> which is often currently what we're doing these days. So um, yes, we're at spiked-online.com. Primarily published articles, but also increasingly podcasts and videos on our YouTube channel as well. So people should go there to check that stuff out. Awesome. It's been a hell of a week, hasn't it, for uh, news pertaining to the line where a freedom expression, freedom expression mm-hmm. and corporate interest meet. So I suppose we could start with maybe the, the breaking news we've had. And that's, uh, you know, Calvin Robinson, Lawrence Fox have both been let go from GB News. Got off to a rocky start, GB News. I, I, I wasn't one of its uh, kind of hysterical critics before mm-hmm. it launched. A lot of people wanted it kind of buried before it had even been born. Uh, it's been a bit of a mixed bag since some things i really enjoy about it some things i think are a little bit much where are you on gb news i suppose in terms of your opinions of of how it's turned out and what do you make of these sackings today well um i should declare an interest as far as i appear pretty regularly on gb news so maybe that would color people's view of what i'm going to say on these matters um i think that it's a complicated picture insofar as particularly what lawrence fox said on the air what was it, just over a week ago now, when, um, you know, th- no one is defending those comments, not least GB News, who have obviously just uh, suspended and now sacked the individual in question. Yeah. Um, I didn't really see anyone apart from, say, his um, a handful of his more conspiratorial supporters who were defending the substance of the comments that were made. What concerned me was the atmosphere which existed after those comments, which is there was a pretty concerted and obvious attempt from big figures in the mainstream media, as well as politicians, serving politicians, to essentially say this was an example of why the entire station had to be shut down. So we switched very quickly, as is often the case, between some offensive comments here um, to the entire organisation, which, as you gestured to just a second ago there, Stephen, there has been this concerted campaign to get rid of GB News since before it was on air. So Stop Funding Hate, which is essentially a campaign group for censorship, um, were actively trying to get broadcasters um, advertisers i should say to pull their money from the broadcaster quite successfully it's sad to say and that's something which has haunted gb news's finances to the extent i understand these things for quite some time since but then that got all dialed up a notch after the lawrence fox incident you had uh tory mp caroline noakes go on the bbc and say it should be shut down you had um, adam bolton a very um, famous broadcaster at sky news and other places for many years to say that it should be shut down so in the grand scheme of things, I'm much more concerned by the kind of casual authoritarianism of the centrist than I am the unpleasant comments of one particular presenter. Um, but at the same time, as you say, I think it's there was just there was it was always about that campaign from the start, which concerned me. And I think people saw that as an opportunity to flex their muscles in that respect. Yeah, it's a good answer. And I mean, you, you kind of um, expect a lot of activist groups like Hope Not Hate, you've mentioned, to, to get involved and try and, uh, you know, influence uh, the shutdown of the channel. But how, how sinister is it when we're having like members of parliament wading in and openly calling for a, a news network to be shut down? That is really alarming to me. And what is so alarming is that they don't recognise what an overstep that is. It's something that they seem to do quite frequently. I mean, Caroline Noakes, who's the Tory MP 
in question who never seems to, you know, there's never been a sort of bandwagon she hasn't jumped on. She's that kind of politician. <laughs> I mean, she'd previously written letters or not, certainly headed letters to things like the Sun on Sunday newspaper when there was the controversy over Jeremy Clarkson's Meghan Markle article. I think there's it has we have to start to understand it as a very serious state of affairs when you have MPs using the letterhead of parliamentary select committees or sometimes even ministerial positions to send missives to private companies, private media companies, in fact, basically demanding that they be brought to heel. That is an outrageous political interference in the free media and the free press. And yet it's something that increasingly happens, but never but never really goes challenged because of the fact that the great and good happen to similarly disagree with the article or the news program, whatever it is in question. That surely can't be our standard. We can't just defend press freedom in instances in which we agree with it. <laughs> Otherwise, you don't have press freedom at all. But I feel like we are going down that route again. That's a great point, and it just it just leads into something else, which is also a big topic, which is Russell Brand and mm. uh, his YouTube demonetization and various people putting pressure, including another politician, um, on Rumble and various other outlets to take his money away or deplatform him. Now, I mean, you hit on something really interesting there, which is at the core of this argument between freedom of expression and accountability, I suppose. And for instance, I'm not a fan of Russell Brand. I've not hid my kind of disdain for him as a person and the kind of content he creates on YouTube. But I, it's, steady, it's very easy for me to say, but that doesn't mean that he should have his livelihood stripped away. That doesn't mean he should be mm -hmm. pulled off every platform on, on the planet. So how do we get people to understand that the only true defense of these principles is if you defend them in the face of or in favor of people that you don't particularly care for? I think that's exactly it. We've just got to remind people that that is always the test. Whether we're talking about freedom of speech, due process, innocent until proven guilty, kind of all three of which are kind of swirling around the Russell Brand case in one way or another, is that the test of the society's commitment to it and an individual's commitment to it is would you defend those principles even for people that you hate, even for people that you vehemently disagree with, even for people that you can't almost hide your own uh, prejudges pre and prejudices about that particular individual. That really is the test. It's certainly that way in freedom of speech where, you know, you need to stress to people, if you only defend the freedom of speech of people who you like, um, who are friends of yours, people who happen to agree with you, you are just defending me speech rather than free speech, as we used to say. And I think the thing is that often gets lost is, you know, that argument's increasingly well established in political discussion. I'm glad to see these days. There is a lot of concern and a lot of kind of mainstream commentators who get that freedom of speech is under threat. Where I think things get a lot more slippery and a lot more tricky for understandable reasons is around accusations of serious criminal, mis um, of serious crimes in the case of Russell Brand. These allegations which have been made against him are not accusations alone necessarily. There is some circumstantial evidence which has been presented by various journalists. But even in situations like this, we do need to reserve judgment. We shouldn't just skip straight to the punishments before any kind of formal criminal procedure has taken place. It doesn't matter how compelling an expose or a documentary is, it's not the same as being able to properly test these um, crimes in court where possible. And I feel like we're losing sight of that. I mean, what the demand to demonetize Russell Brand really represents, it's already happened on YouTube for re um, in a, in a uh, development we might get onto, obviously MPs have been writing to other platforms on this suspect, it's, it, on this subject, is essentially to try and meet out some sort of punishment without having to go to the recourse of the law. And that's a really slippery road to go down, which I think recent history has given us a, a bit of a lesson in that, definitely. Absolutely. And um, do we not have an issue here in terms of the advertising model of these big tech platforms in the sense that it, it may be 
that this decision to demonetize Russell Brand has got absolutely nothing to do with ethics, morals, or prejudgment. It just could be a case of they fear an exodus of mm-hmm. lucrative advertisers if they let him continue to make money on their platform. Could it not just come down to the uh, the bottom line here? I think there's an element of that. Um, but at the same time, one could easily make the argument, and I think a lot of people in Silicon Valley were hoping to stick to this position for many years, is that it's probably better for their bottom line if they keep out these controversies full stop, where it's just saying you don't put your thumb on either end of the scale. Um, actually, that's one thing that in the earlier days of the demands for sort of censorship, a lot of the platforms were actually quite hesitant to go down this road for no other reason than it wasn't in their self-interest because you might please this area of um, public opinion. You might really displease this area. It might also involve you kicking off channels like Russell Brand, which, you know, whatever we might say about the content, um, which is a sort of strange cross-section of sort of wellness advice and conspiracy theories these days, um, it's popular. So I, th- I think in a sense that the bottom line discussion is, is a tricky one because it's not always apparent to me that does help them and also these uh cancellations such as they are demonetizations they never happen in a vacuum they always happen in an environment in which you've got politicians corporate media sometimes public opinion as well but i think often the former two demanding that some sort of action be taken they haven't just been sat there in the boardroom looking at the accounts and thinking you know we're gonna have to do this so um i can understand that there is that bottom line question but i often um generally tend to think that it's it's way down the list of uh, things that they're looking into i think they just they want a quiet life as much as is possible and we're in a in the unfortunate position where act first censor first think about it later is helpful for, to them in that particular moment sure and um a lot of my lefty friends would choose this opportunity to make the point that this is a private company and they mm. can do what they want. I hear this refrain all the time whenever someone's deplatformed, demonetized, etc. And well, that's obviously on the face of it, technically true. It doesn't really get to the heart of the issue, does it? It doesn't. I'm also struck by the fact that you say your lefty friends make that point, which is always the case now. I mean, this is the one area in which you hear supposed left-wingers become essentially radical proponents of the property rights of billionaires. It's a really strange <laughs> sort of state of affairs. But I think we need to recognise what it is. that. We're... First of all, there are all kinds of things we don't let private companies do. <laughs> Rightly so. You pass laws against these things. You, inst- you institute regulators to make sure that they don't abuse the monopolistic power that they can sometimes take over a particular area of commerce, or in this case, communication. Uh, there are all kinds of anti-discrimination laws that have been passed to ensure that you can't just kick people off on the basis of all kinds of different characteristics, some of them about what they think, some about their immutable characteristics. So this idea that private companies can do anything they want is absurd from a left-wing perspective, certainly, but it's also just not the status quo anyway. We're in this very tricky position, I think, where it's a bit of a mixed picture. I think on the one hand, as we were talking about earlier, these decisions, whether it's censorship, whether it's demonetizing, whether it's any of these, anything down the kind of scale, they rarely ever happen in a vacuum. The story of big tech censorship has been one in which these Silicon Valley companies have often been weaponized, utilized, lent on by other power centers, if you like. Could be government, could be the media elites, the established media. Um, it's often the case, There's in, one thing that came out of the Twitter files is the kind of revolving door between US government in particular and some of the big social media companies which has taken place. And so what we're basically seeing is um, corporate power being weaponized, often by government power, against individuals, some of which are genuinely unsavory. But I think any situation in which we're allowing oligarchs, essentially, to dictate the acceptable realms of discussion on what has become in an aroundabout kind of way, the digital public square. If we can't recognise that as a problem, if we're banging on about the property rights of 
billionaires rather than the speech rights of individuals. And I think our moral compasses are definitely screwed up. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, how do we navigate this issue of Russell Brand on just on an individual level? Mm. Because I'm kind of in a place where obviously we can't know it's innocence or proven guilty. My instincts usually is the best place for these claims are in a court of law, mm-hmm. obviously, but uh, the journalist put together a quite compelling case that just can't be dismissed out of hand. Mm-hmm. Now, these allegations might never may never see the day in court. However, his reputation's been, you know, completely irreparably tarnished now. So I'm just trying to, I suppose, ask what, what I mean, I, I'd, I'd be reluctant to, if I knew him to sit down in public with him mm-hmm. now, for instance. And how do we navigate this in the, in the post-Me Too era when allegations are made very publicly about people uh, that don't end up in, the, in front of the mm-hmm. justice system? I think that's a really important point because the nature of these investigations into older allegations, they're very difficult to get into a court of law, certainly very difficult to get a prosecution, very difficult to prosecute many of these cases in any case. Um, but at the same time, I think that doesn't mean that we should therefore get into a situation where if we read a kind of compelling expose, and there is many compelling details about what dispatches and the Sunday Times and the Times have put together. There's, it's not just bare accusation. There is um, circumstantial evidence, certainly, um, in relation to text messages against people he's um, allegedly sexually assaulted. He does have a case to answer. And it doesn't take away from the fact that um, the best place to do that is in the court of law is the fact that that might not happen. Um, How we navigate this is I think we have to navigate between two dreadful approaches which have sprung up in relation to the Russell Brand thing. The first one is the believe women approach, which is what was very much popularised by Me Too, which is essentially to say if, if allegations are made, particularly if there's a lot of them, if you've got a kind of, if you can stack them on top of each other, then that is instantly proof of, of guilt, um, it's a classic kind of overcorrection because of the fact that women weren't believed previously, that women often aren't believed even now in many cases, that therefore you should reflexively believe all of them. That's a ridiculous standard to make. It's a recipe for injustice. Um, it, it assumes um, a kind of level of certainty, which is ridiculous in my view. The other problem that we have, which has arisen with the Russell Brand thing and some other characters as well, um, Andrew Tate is another one, which is the case where when you have online influencers of broadcasters who have really marinated themselves in the kind of conspiratorial world that now exists online is that they will reflexively believe that this is a wef stitch up (laughs) that this is um again the the powers that be being out to get them all russell brown has to do is put out a video getting ahead of the story saying heavily hinting that that's what this might be and there'll be a not insignificant chunk of people who will reflexively believe that you know the people who claim to be incredibly skeptical are often incredibly credulous when it comes to a lot of these particular influences we just it's not about believing the accusers it's not about believing russell brand no one apart from the people involved in this story know (laughs) that's the whole point that's why we have to maintain this principle of innocent um until proven guilty which, yes, is a narrow legal right in the sense it's supposed to protect defendants against state power and so on. But I think the lesson of Me Too in particular is that it's it's not a bad principle to glean to in general. Um, as you say, it's not to say that you or I or anyone else will not form a view about those allegations, will not form a view about the person in question, will not weigh the evidence that's been presented in the media and so on. That's fine. But if, if it culminates into a clear-cut, quite tyrannical social consequence like being demonetized like being uh, having mps intervene against you trying to get you shut down off the internet that is clearly overstepping the line um and we might get into this but there have been a lot of cases 
over the course of the past 10 years in particular in the United Kingdom, just in just that case, where you've had what appeared to be very credible, very well researched, very uh, clearly exposed allegations made against particular individuals in public life, which turned out to be made out of whole cloth. That does happen, particularly in an atmosphere of believing the victim. So it's difficult is the point to make. But at the same time, we need to glean to these principles as much as is humanly possible, I think. I agree. And uh, you, you make a great point in your in your piece and you've, you've just reiterated it here that, you know, uh, Russell Brand's found that wonderful intersection between this kind of health guru mm. versus conspiracy peddler. And I'm just wondering how much of an own goal was it for the MP to try and, you know, send an official letterhead again, try and get him demonetized, because that really is just a case of exhibit A now for him and his mm-hmm. audience to say, look, the state are trying to shut me down. I think that's exactly right. That's what, what one of the many things that was so depressing about it. Um, the new kind of conspiratorial world, which wasn't born with COVID and that kind of period, but was certainly put on steroids by it. I mean, you've got a whole ecosystem now, which almost didn't really exist yeah. two or three years ago. I think the number one factor in that, aside from the general kind of derangement of everyone being locked inside their houses and society going mad at the same time as we were expected to uh, exist under these punitive measures was censorship i mean time and again you had conspiratorial types or even people who began as just kind of slightly more lockdown skeptical or covid skeptical who seemed to get nudged further and further down the rabbit hole so to speak um censorship is along every step of that journey it seems like it was very early on in the pandemic you had um social media companies certainly moving into to censor certain accounts some of which conspiratorial some of them just dissenting um i think whilst you can't really boil it down to you don't want to make things too simplistic the combination of just the kind of deranging period of lockdown and the censorious response from the establishment is what has given us this new ecosystem of conspiracy theories. I, th- I think it is those are the two primary things so if we can ever avoid feeding into it really should but this is the problem is that um we have a political class in particular but a media class as well who see censorship as essentially the, the solution to almost every problem now and it's gonna be it's gonna take a while to shake them out of that particular disbelief i think yeah just to keep in conspiratorial land and, and uh come at it from a, a different angle and put my own tinfoil hat on for a second mm. a lot of people from the other side of this debate are saying uh russell brand saw this coming over the hill and this is why he's kind of kind of dropped out of the tv and film work over the years and mm. cultivated this very online audience that will kind of lap up conspiracies about them and the establishment and they're all out to get us just ready to wait for this very moment so he can capitalize and or, or at least survive and i suppose if you want to join the dots i suppose they're there but i mean how, mm. how compelling of an argument is that to you it's difficult because it's just so speculative, isn't it? I mean, if there yes, was ever, yeah. you know, someone sort of turned around and said, you know, he said a few years ago, this is what he wanted to do. That would be one. That would be one thing. Um, it's it's difficult. But as, as you say, I think in a way it would it it, it it would seem too easy a kind of pat explanation, if you like, um, not least because of the fact that Russell Brand always had that conspiratorial element within him as well. I remember I dug out like the first piece I ever wrote about him. I've been not, I've been a critic of his during his various iterations. It should say. Yeah. But um, when he was running around telling people not to vote and flirting with the Labour oh, Party. The, the revolutionary phase. The revolutionary phase. Ed, guest editing the New Statesman for some reason. Yeah. All that kind of stuff. Um, and even I, I remember reading things we'd written about him back then. And even then he had a kind of past of dipping the toe in kind of 9-11 conspiracy theories and things like that. It's always been a part of his persona. So I think the idea that he's kind of cynically adopted it in order to uh, 
create a kind of firewall against what the establishment media might throw at him doesn't quite stack up. And also, if nothing else, it's sort of spectacularly failed because he's already being punished to some degree by a lot of the platforms that he's already on. Because I know he's on Rumble, which is, of course, the kind of free speech alternative to YouTube. But, you know, he has been that demonetization has deprived him, experts reckon, by at least a million pounds a year. So the consequences are already flowing in, even if it's um, he's slightly better inoculated to it because of his audience and others might be. Knowing Russell Brand as uh, as well as we do in the UK and, and being familiar with a lot of his pre-Hollywood output, uh, how much do you buy into this idea that he poses any threat whatsoever to the the sort of legacy media, media as it's termed, or the establishment or the state with the kind of content he's making on Big Pharma and the World Economic Forum and things like that? Well, it's difficult, isn't it? Because I think the conspiratorial challenge to the establishment media is almost bound to fail as far as it will find you a very passionate audience um which will be spread globally which will will you know rally to your defense and so on but there is still a profound gap and i think people often see the millions of people who are racked up watching a russell brown video or whatever and confuse that for like public opinion it's an absurd proposition like your average person is not running around talking about microchips in vaccines or even or you know the, the the plot that is being hatched at Davos this year to do X, Y, Z. This is not the um, substance of, you know, public opinion and discussions down the dog and duck. Uh, You do see it creeping, certainly. There's certainly elements of it here or there. But at the same time, I think um, if there is to be a challenge, a properly grounded challenge to the establishment media, which has catastrophically failed, which has become incredibly propagandistic, which does confuse its own opinions for facts and all this kind of stuff, all that stuff is very true which was incredibly dishonest and authoritarian during COVID, certainly. You can't mount that challenge off the back of bullshit. Like, you can't mount that challenge off the back of competing propaganda. You can't mount that challenge off the back of competing misinformation as well. And it's going to really fire up a small section of the population, but it's going to leave the vast majority of people looking and wondering what the hell you're talking about. So I think that to those of us who are interested in challenging, in creating alternatives to the mainstream media, which has failed so catastrophically time and time again, and I see spikes as an outlet which definitely wants to do all those things, it's important that it's just grounded in, in reason and um, reality, uh, which I think a lot of these outlets certainly aren't these days. That's a good answer. I, I like that that idea of you, you know, you don't hear it down the local pub, but every once in a while when you do, you almost instantly know where they've heard it. I think I, <laughs> I, I reported from outside... Um, parliament there was some um, anti-vaccine demonstration Mm -hmm. there and I I made a point of asking them you know if you don't trust the establishment media where do you get your information Mm -hmm. and uh, everyone or everyone I think gave me the same three or four names of people who operated primarily on YouTube or or Rumble so I suppose my next question then is how do you ensure that you don't fall into sort of an echo chamber how do you make sure you don't fall into like a one perspective groove it's difficult isn't it because I think there's a lot of what's happen with a lot of these influences is it audience capture is it a kind of they've just been radicalized by the environment that they found themselves in it's often very easy to just i can you know i can understand the pull of wanting to keep what you perceive to be your audience your side your tribe on side i think it's something that we at spike i'm not i'm not i wouldn't say we go out of our way to irritate a section of our audience from time to time but because we've got a set of principles that we approach things in in terms of our commitment to freedom of speech our commitment to reason our commitment to democracy we're not going to jettison those just because people who might on one issue be our allies have 
lost the plot on another issue. Um, we've wound up large sections, or not large sections, but we've wound up um, passionate minorities of our, of our audience from time to time with our perspectives on certain issues. Um, I think it's really important, but I think that's why having a set of principles, having a kind of view on the world um, really grounds you in crazy uncertain times i think you if you've got that kind of political bearing you know what it is what kind of society you want to see you know what principles you want to hold to it's a lot easier to navigate this strange new world um than it might be for other people so i think it's about sticking it's about having principles and sticking to them gets you a long way these days i think perfect answer yeah and i've, I've, I've witnessed that firsthand we spiked that, that it'll take positions sometimes that perhaps people won't expect it to take mm. because i think they assume they've got your number if you take one position on one thing mm. and then obviously what the next thing you write might not fall into that groove of say the culture war or, or mm. whatever and um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the digital harms bill or the digital safety bill whatever they're they're calling it now because i, I suppose to a lot of people on the face of it they may mm. look at it and think well this is a great thing it's going to prevent people from being exploited online bullying uh you know sexual explicit images being sent around things like that i mean it looks like a net good just on the face but why might it why why might we run into problems with this further down the line yes yeah, so the, the online safety which has just been given it's on its way to royal assent it's certainly been gone all, all of its way through parliament is a really worrying piece of legislation insofar as what you have is a taking some issues which are genuinely serious right child exploitation on the internet um, children being able to access um, age inappropriate content but then attached to on the other side is a concern around all kinds of other pieces of content throughout the whole debate of the passage through the online safety but it's gone through so many iterations now um there has been any any kind of issue that there might be a sort of moral panic about it it's been kind of hung on it like a christmas tree it would be misinformation it'd be harmful speech it was um encrypted messages everything was essentially presented um, and attached and trying to put it in one bill. It's very difficult to regulate the internet. To try and do all of it at once is a crazy sort of escapade in so many respects. You do wonder whether any of this is even implementable on some sort of level. The upshot of it is, is that it's empowering Ofcom, which is currently obviously our broadcast regulator, to regulate the internet, which is a strange state of affairs when the fact you've got just a British quango trying to do that. I don't, you know, how that will actually pan out is not entirely clear. But also one of the things that's most worrying about it is Ofcom, as many criticisms I have of it and that sort of model, you know, that's regulating broadcasters, businesses and so on. The internet isn't like that. I mean, every individual can be a broadcaster. They've got a Facebook page, they've got a Twitter account, they've got a YouTube channel, whatever. That's one of the best things about it, um, even though it's much maligned. Um, it's a genuinely fantastic thing. Do we really want individuals to be regulated as if they're the BBC and ITV or something? That's almost the kind of road that we're moving into. It's only bound to have a chilling effect. And I'm really not convinced that it's going to be useful about tackling those genuine issues of safety, not emotional safety or, you know, the safety of respectable opinion that is supposedly challenged by the internet, um, by this big blundering piece of legislation. I think if there are issues with crime, which is obviously increasingly being conducted over the internet, or using the internet as a kind of tool. That's about empowering the police to have the tools they need to find these people and to bring them to justice. It's not to kind of essentially enlist social media companies via a regulator to become part of the criminal justice system. That doesn't seem workable, let alone desirable, but it seems to be the road that we're going down at the moment. What's in it for a Tory government then to try and bring in this legislation? What do they feel like they may possibly achieve by restricting what we can and can't do on the internet? It's a difficult one because obviously it seems to grate against. I mean, this has been a piece of legislation that various Tory 
um, leaders, and there's been obviously several dozen since the last time we spoke, um, have inherited. <laughs> um, so it's one of those things that it'd be very difficult to drop. Who wants to be um, against online safety? You know, it sounds like such a wonderful thing. He wants to be in favour of online harms, which was the other name that the bill had before it got um, rebranded. Um, and obviously it speaks to, there's always going to be a kind of patrician element within the Tory party or both parties, to be honest, which wants desperately to be seen to be looking after the children. I mean, that's the thing. Censorship is often made, is often argued for cynically in the form of think of the children. That's a very powerful argument that holds sway over both political parties and often over public opinion as well. There were a, there were a string of quite unpleasant cases of young people who had many mental health problems, who were seeing unpleasant content on the internet, um, in some cases taking their own lives. These are very emotive stories, which are obviously going to lead to the demand that something must be done. But we have to look what that something is. Is it going to be worse than the status quo? Will it actually help avoid those particular issues, those particular tragedies? I'm not convinced that it will. But um, unfortunately, the demand to just do something to be seen to be protecting um, us against any particular challenge is is just is too powerful a pull on politicians um and unfortunately i think that's what we've ended up in this particular instance is the uk a particular special case in terms of language restrictions in the free world really i mean i, I think uh, americans tend to raise their eyebrows quite a bit when you mention the police have visited people for misgendering someone or putting a sticker somewhere or mm -hmm. perhaps being overheard saying something. And I, I mean, first of all, do we need a, a reform of our speech laws in general? And are you getting as irritated as I am watching the police waste time knocking on people's door for things they may have tweeted? It's insane. And I think when you tell Americans, for instance, even a kind of middle of the road liberal Americans, sometimes they'll be like what? what? Like, what do you <laughs> yeah. mean? You know, you mean this this army veteran who posted a couple of spicy anti woke memes gets a, literally gets a visit from the police. There's been people who've been arrested in their own homes for misgendering people on Twitter. That's an insane state of affairs. Not least because of the fact that oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, the police will have overstepped the law while doing it. We have some very censorious laws in this country which have a pretty give police a pretty wide berth to intervene, and yet even then. They're overstepping the mark. I think we've got a problem with the laws itself, obviously, certainly in comparison to America because of the First Amendment. Um, we have very censorious laws. We, along with many other European countries, have adopted the notion of hate speech, the idea that there are certain forms of speech which are, are so offensive they basically amount to a form of violence, therefore need to be clamped down upon. Um, we're not unique in that, in that area, but it's certainly something that we're pretty far down the road with. Um, in comparison to America and its First Amendment, which is very difficult to certainly legislate against speech. I think the other thing is that we do have a sort of culture which seems to exist, certainly within the police at the moment, in which, again, to censor is somehow seen to be virtuous. I don't know who it's being virtuous to, people who read the Guardian newspaper or work at the Labour Party or something, but there is this kind of sense that I think certain institutions in society have embraced censorious, identitarian, woke culture because it's, it feels like a means for them to absolve themselves of former sins. I think that provides a phony virtue. I don't think there's anything progressive or positive about them embracing those ideologies. But I think certainly where the police is concerned, because there is this ongoing sense um, that their past and present failings are so profound in relation to women, minorities and so on, they've kind of overcorrected to the point where if someone says something a little bit rude about a trans person on the internet, they'll be showing up with a battering ram. <laughs> someone who's just you know cleared the shelves out at Sainsbury's is able to go off scot-free so it's it's a combination between the culture in our institutions with some various censorious laws as you were saying 
So great answer, Tom, and a great point to finish on. Uh, I've really enjoyed speaking to you again. Uh, maybe you can just remind people where they can find more of your your writing and, and where to find your podcast. Yes, um, so they can read Spikes every day at spikes-online.com. Our podcast is um, ingeniously called The Spiked Podcast, um, which is on YouTube as well as all the podcast channels. And they can find us on social media in most places as at Spiked Online, all one word. That's great, Tom. It's been an absolute pleasure as usual. Speak to you soon. Brilliant. Good to see you soon. You too. Take care.